0: Overdrive.
1: Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that tries to spread the word about trains, planes and automobiles. I'm David Brown and in this program we have news stories including there is now a buyer for the Lang Lang Proving Ground in Victoria. Alan Zervis takes us through the new Kia Sorento large SUV, we have some feedback, including one of the wankiest press releases we've read in a long time, and while we have given a technical review of the new Kia Sorento, we got the team together to go on an adventure with both a new Sorento and another large SUV which comes from a different heritage. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au our previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify, or you could go to our Facebook page, Overdrive City, one word. So let's start the program with the news. A major heritage facility established during Holden's time in Australia is the Lang Lang Proving Grounds south of Melbourne, on the way to Phillip Island. The grounds have a banked track, skid pan, dirt roads and rough terrain for suspension testing. It was a site at which Australian engineering could be applied and refined. With General Motors leaving Australia, this valuable facility could have been lost forever. Many hoped that the site might be bought by an overseas company, with firms from China being the most likely contenders. A sale has now gone through to VinFast, the car manufacturer from Vietnam, although the country of origin is not mentioned in the Holden press release. VinFast intends to employ some of the engineers and development staff from the closed-down Holden, Ford and Toyota operations. Under the agreement, GM specialty vehicles... Will continue to access the Langlang Lang site for testing and engineering validation of new products in local conditions. Vinfast, the Vietnamese company that has purchased the Holden proving grounds at Langlang Lang in Victoria, was founded only three years ago in 2017 when they broke ground on an 828-acre facility on Catay Island near the city of Hai Phong. Phase one of their plan to make cars and electric motorbikes. Will cost 2 billion Aussie dollars. With the help of a European car maker and some design companies, they exhibited their first car in the Paris Motor Show just one year later, in 2018. Recently, they gained exclusive rights to distribute Chevrolets in Vietnam and will take ownership of the existing General Motors factory in Hanoi. The factory will then build a GM licensed all new global small car to be sold under the VinFast name. VinFast will be the title sponsor of the 2020 Vietnamese Grand Prix and plans to market electric vehicles to the United States by 2021. Some 6.3% of vehicles sold in Australia up until August were hybrids, but while a range of manufacturers have some hybrids on the market, Toyota accounted for 92% of the hybrid sales. This is a reward for being a pioneer of this technology. Sean Hanley, now Vice President of Sales and Marketing, launched the Prius in our market.
2: We launched that back in October 2001. So it was a really significant time. You know, I always tell a story, I didn't realise the significance of the launch of that car myself, even though I was heading it up. At the time, this, this hybrid technology, I didn't properly understand, I don't think, until many later years now, how significant that launch of that car was for Toyota at the time. It was never going to be a big volume seller. I mean, we launched it with a sales plan of five a month. Could you imagine that in Toyota at the time? Five a month.
1: (laughs) They still don't sell many Priuses, but they do sell over 4,100 hybrids a month. The medium-sized passenger vehicle segment in the Australian market has not been a happy hunting ground for many car makers. Products such as Ford Mondeo, Kia Optima, Honda Accord have tried and failed. That segment is now totally dominated by the Toyota Camry, of which 62% are hybrid models. After 31 years, Subaru Australia has announced the end of their Liberty model. The medium-sized Liberty, first launched in 1989, played a significant role for Subaru. It was sophisticated with all-wheel drive and the option of a station wagon. Now, SUVs are dominating this size of vehicle, as Subaru's own figures show. Over the past two years, Subaru has sold 2,441 Liberties compared to their Outback SUV with good ground clearance and off-road capabilities, with sales that are nearly six times the volume, a clear indication of market preferences. For nearly a century, electric cars languished in obscurity, only created by the backyard enthusiast or for very special limited applications. More recent attempts by General Motors and Honda were not successful, but improved battery performance and management started to show promise and Tesla made electric cars sexy with incredible acceleration. The next stage of their growing acceptance has been in motor racing and now Ford has shown an electric Mustang on the drag strip. They have held a match race between their hotted up 5.2 litre supercharged V8 petrol Mustang and a hotted up electric model at the NHRA Nationals in Indianapolis. The petrol car won by a whisker, but not before the electric car showed its potential by lifting the front wheels off the ground when it started its run. The electric Mustang is rated at 1,044 kilowatts and finished just three one-hundredths of a second behind. And that has been the news. (music) Kia has just launched their fourth generation of their large SUV, the Sorento. We've done a video on it. And this is how we introduce the subject. Kia are doing very well in the Australian market. I don't mean the occasional flurry led by marketing dollars. I mean product driven growth over four, five or more years. Yet they have a bit of an image of being a small car company. We're selling both bargain price, but value for money and good quality. But can they do as well with bigger cars? We're here for the launch of the fourth generation of their Sorento, the large SUV. Now in its category in Australia, they are only 11th in the scheme of things. In fact, I think Mercedes-Benz is selling a few more so far this year of their GLE. Why I can't explain. But the point is, can this car make it a more image for Kia in the large vehicle? it's been launched we've had a drive of it it is available in four-wheel drive and a diesel engine but let's have a look at its overall features for a vehicle that is perhaps not rugged four-wheel drive but much more family car and of course to help me in the review who better than our good friend from gay car boys alan Good g'day alan david
0: there are probably a lot better but i'll do nicely (laughs) how are you
1: it's always good to get a different approach Thank you very much. I think that's flattering, but I'm not quite sure. (laughs) You'd have to say that this is an elegant car, really, isn't it?
0: Oh, gee, what a peach. The look of it is just stunning. And I think I said in the video that it gives me a bit of a a Range Rover type feel. The outside is big and masculine and square and, uh, you know, quite imposing.
1: They mentioned the word at the launch that it wasn't chubby. I like that word. I think that's the way that the sort of rounded blandness of some of these vehicles give it a certain chubby look.
0: Well, I mean, even compared to the previous model of the Sorrento, I think this is a a quantum leap. It's just so elegant.
1: They're 11th in the class of large SUVs below $70,000. However, I think they deserve to do better, but it's also a weird class because it includes very serious off-roaders like the Prado, which is top of the list, and Toyota's other one, the Fortuner, which is weirdly named, but they're both ones that have high credibility in off-road. This is not aimed at that
0: market? No, no, it's clearly a soft-roader. I think that's the thing that people have to understand, that in this class, in this segment, there are vehicles that are serious off-roaders, so ones that can climb cliffs, and the other ones, which are the ones you could take camping or the ones you could uh, you know, pick the kids up from school in and so forth. And that's what this is, albeit a very good one.
1: It does come in four-wheel drive but not necessarily. The four-wheel drive actually has quite different drivetrain. It has a diesel engine and a dual clutch gearbox. How did you find those?
0: Well of course the diesel is the only one that's available at the moment for about another uh, I think what did they say six weeks or eight weeks or thereabouts. Hmm. I think it is a Brilliant. When I first got into it, I didn't realise that the 8-speed automatic was a dual-clutch transmission. I thought it was a little bit odd, and I felt it was strange at first, till I realised what it was, and then everything was fine.
1: I'm not sure a dual clutch is the way to go off-roading, not that you would to any great extent, but the point about it is, and I really like the diesel and to some extent the dual clutch, that it didn't have those sort of stagnant features about it. Sometimes diesel engines, you've got to get them over 1750 or 2000 revs per minute before they really get into their stride this had enough immediate throttle response that I thought was credible
0: absolutely right and also for a massive car for a car this size it feels so light
1: easy to drive and what I also enjoyed is that it has very good NVH noise vibration and harshness good in the sense that it's reduced when you drive over many Australian roads and you hit not only rough roads, but roads of different bitumen and coarseness. When you have that coarse bitumen where the aggregate is, uh, appears to be a, a little bit more prominent in the surface, that it can make a noise that can be quite distressing. This was smooth in many situations?
0: Well, we took it over some reasonably rough roads last week when we first picked it up, and I thought it handled them particularly well.
1: It was comfortable to drive, and uh, I think that's the point. It is the one that you can travel in this great country of ours with uh, relative ease, and I think that's important. Inside, bit of bling for my liking. Uh, You'd love it, wouldn't you?
0: Oh, I loved it. I love a bit of bling. The lighting system particularly,
1: absolutely
0: stunning. In that top model, the doors all light up and the the sculpturing in the door panels, that lights up as well, and there's little streaks of light around the cabin. No, I think it's beautiful.
1: It also has, in the top model, a full digital display, including, a, what is it, 12, 13-inch display in front of the driver. It's now getting digital information in a format that can really suit you.
0: Well, that digital dash even shows up the side view, so the view from the sort of blind spot camera, if you like, it shows that up in it as well. It's just stunning, and they pegged this Kia decided that they get a few extra vehicles in and see how theirs does with these other vehicles. One of them was VW Touareg, which is about $40,000 more expensive.
1: So the prices start at about 47000 and go up to $65,000 plus on roads. It's not cheap in the sense of being low quality. You've got to say that's really good value for money.
0: Well, like I point out in the video, you could get four of these for a Range Rover. Now, you know, I don't pretend that a Kia Sorento is in the same stratosphere as a Range Rover. It it simply isn't. But if you had a choice of getting one Range Rover or four top-of-the-range Kia Sorentos,
1: I don't know, you might think twice. You'd be able to keep the family separate and so enjoy the trip even more.
0: Well, you could put each member in a separate car for that matter. Exactly. Enjoyed even more.
1: Alan, uh, great that you were there and uh, great that uh, we can reflect then on this particular car. Thank you for your time.
0: Thanks, David. See you next
1: time. And that's Alan Service from Gay Car Boys, and we were talking about the launch of the fourth-generation large SUV from Kia, the Sorento. You're listening to Overdrive. And it's feedback time where we report on a few comments and reflections from our Facebook site and other media coverage. With all the talk about building new roads and railways to create jobs, I was reminded of a story we did a few months ago where we interviewed Trevor Bailey, who is the Chief Operating Officer of Green Distillation Technologies, a company that has invented a way of recycling vehicle tyres without creating pollution and in fact creating energy and byproducts to be carbon neutral and recover valuable resources. Apparently a number of overseas nations are spending tens of millions of dollars to build plants in their countries. Building the facility would create jobs like building roads, but it will also provide some ongoing employment at the factory, transporting tyres and transporting the raw products created from the site. It will do wonders in reducing landfill while helping to meet climate targets. Mercedes have just issued a press release about their combined effort to design a car, I think. I'm not sure if it's a real car, a toy car, or a one-off mock-up. I can't work it out because their press release is one of the wankiest piece of wordages I have read in a long time, and most pictures of the car and its features look like a toy. Here's an example. On September the 8th, Project Gelanderwagon... The first outcome of a collaboration that is a first of its kind between Mercedes-Benz and Chief Creative Director and Founder of Off-White and Men's Artistic Director of Louis Vuitton, Virgil Abloh, was unveiled via a unique digital launch event and used the Mercedes-Benz G-Class to explore ways of disrupting future perceptions of luxury. I think that means there are two or three companies involved. They go on. The result is a distinctive manifestation of the G-Class as never seen before. Compelled to support the arts at a critical time, a replica of the design piece will be auctioned as part of Sotheby's Contemporary Curated, one of the auction houses' most revered series, which is defined by the unique perspective of a different influential taskmaster each year. Based on the pictures, all I can say is that the car looks like a Toyota Ruckus, a cube-like vehicle that failed in Australia, with all the elegance of design of an Esky. I had a chat with traffic engineer Rob Morgan the other day about signposting on roads. He is a member of the Standards Committee and so is very into the size, location and lettering on signs. A very important professional error. The only thing that I challenged him on is why some street names on signs are written in all uppercase. If you read a newspaper, note that even the major headings have, at the most, only a capitalised first letter. In Australia, the standards call for major road names to be in lowercase, but the secondary and local roads are in all uppercase. We ventured onto the subject of local street name signs that are in uppercase and, too often, crazy colour schemes. Upper and lower case, on the fifth point you made in that webinar, was about narrow and wide lettering. And you had a slide there that had some signs on it, and it had Sydney in lower case, Saltash Highway in higher case, and then Plumpton and Hawker in lower case. Is there a standard for the name of a road being in upper case and a location in lower case?
3: Yes, that's the, that's the convention that all destinations or locations are in uh, upper and lower case and road names are in capitals. Now, uh, there is, of course, a different uh, legibility distance for certain heights of, of these and the best legibility is generally uh, upper and lower case. But part of the uh, reason having uh, uppercase only for uh, street names or road name signs is simply to distinguish that bit of information and you'll see the the road names on direction signs are in a white patch. And again, that's so that we can quickly uh, cast our eyes over a sign and we don't have to read every piece of the sign. If we're looking for a road name, we just uh, look at the the white patches with the uh, uppercase lettering on them. If we're looking for a destination, we discard those. We just look at the uh, the other parts. So it's part of a process of really trying to make the uh, task
1: as simple as possible. I understand that shapes and patterns, but uh, if you look at, say, a newspaper, a quality newspaper, even the headings will be in lowercase. And quite a few years ago, a colleague of mine wrote a seminal paper on the type and layout. Now, this is for magazines, but he called it, Are You Communicating or Just Making Pretty Shapes? Yep. And he found that the readability, and I think you've confirmed that, for lowercase, maybe capital for the beginning of the letter, but a lowercase is easier to read and perhaps easier to read travelling at the high speed limits is there a possibility that that may become a bigger factor
3: well no if if that's your issue you simply make the lettering higher you know uh, a larger uh, lettering for for a uh, road name uh, compared with the other ones and in fact in uh, part 15 direction signs we we have the uh, Requirement, uh, say on freeway exit signs. Typically, you have a uh, destination name, or you may have a dest, which is upper and lower case, or you may have a destination name and a road name, and the road name will be black capitals on a uh, white patch. But if you only have the road name, then the standard requires that you actually use a larger uh, font size to uh, compensate for the fact that uh, you don't have that uh, additional information with upper and lower case.
1: Well, that brings me to the point of local street signs, which are often quite small, but putting aside even, well, and considering as well as upper and lower case, they're often in a lot of pretty colours, which sometimes I find hard to read. Do you think there's a need for a more rigorous... Scientific-based approach to street signs. Uh, this is local street signs.
3: Yeah, no, I understand, and uh, I understand where you live—not the suburb, but the, uh,
1: the capital city.
3: The capital city, and uh, probably the uh, Australia's best examples of worst signs for street names around that area. So, uh, the first thing that uh, needs to be done is for anyone getting to. Uh, use uh, street names to read uh, Part 5 of AS1742, because if they did, most of those uh, sign-colour combinations would not happen. There's in the, the standard gives advice on different colour combinations to get adequate contrast, So that's the first thing. And it also says black on white is obviously the best uh, for that purpose, but uh, understands that, you know, you might want to use some other uh, colours.
1: You're listening to Overdrive. Well, Alan Zervis gave us a comprehensive rundown on the new Kia Sorento. But rather than just do a technical road test, we also got the gang together to go on a bit of a trip with two vehicles in a similar category. We've had two cars to test. Both of them are sizeable SUVs, but they come from a different heritage. One is the Nissan Patrol. Grew up big and lumpy, but has become a little bit more, a lot more luxurious in certainly its appointed features, perhaps not so much in its ride as some others, but still pretty good. The other is the new Kia Sorento, which came up as more the SUV rather than from a four wheel drive heritage. So, where do we test them? Here we are. We are in Rydal and we have just been to Tarana. If you head west from Sydney, almost get to Lithgow, turn left and go into the countryside there, and it's absolutely beautiful. But here we are in front of an open fire. Fred. This building here, what is it?
3: I uh, was staying in the station master's residence at the Rydal railway station.
1: So we're quite close to the rail line. It's actually at the
3: station, which was somewhat unusual apparently uh, because they usually had them separate from the station. But luckily, there's a waiting room plus the other rooms on the station that insulate us from the trains. Mm.
1: So here we are in the Station Master's house, and it's full of things that remind us of trains. Pamela, have you become an anorak? Are you going to be watching the trains? There's jigsaw puzzles here just between particular services. Does that appeal to you?
4: Oh, well, I didn't think it did. But after staying here for one night, I think I'm a convert. A train went by not long before we started the interview, and we all rushed to see it because... How often do you get to be that close to a train? Um, we didn't get to ca- count the... What's, they're not called carriages when they're carrying goods. What are they called?
1: Noisy devices. <laughs>
4: yes, those. But there were a lot. It took ages for it to pass. But it was great. It was great. And there are so many books here, magazines. And I don't think that you mentioned the DVD or the CD. Can I just get that for you?
1: Oh, if, if you would. So you can hear them, but you say, are you woken by them?
3: Uh, no, no, they're, they're not that loud that they would wake us up.
4: Mm. In fact, the rooster from the house across the road caused more oh. trouble at four o'clock this morning than did the uh, two-minute-past-four goods train that went rumbling by. We didn't mind it at all, but the rooster, we would have liked to have <laughs> yeah, made no him way. into a nice stew.
1: The thing I note here is that you're now referring it to the minute. Is this an, an adaption of... Train timetables?
4: Oh I I want to be as precise as the great railway timetable outside here. No, yes. no,
1: I said to the minute. That's not as <laughs> precise as the railway. What is the C D?
4: Oh this is um this is called Sound and Stream.
1: The sound of steam. Oh <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we had a particularly nice lunch. <laughs> that was the fishy one. <laughs> Sorry, that's a, sound and
4: sorry, stream. That's, that's that was the fly fishing. That's a shop in Fermanagh in, County, Fermanagh in Northern Ireland. Sorry, I got totally mixed up for a
1: moment there. So, so here we are in Australia. <laughs> uh, right. It's, the Sound of Steam. How would you describe this CD?
4: Well, if you uh, amalgamated Mozart, Beethoven and Vorjak, their rhythms and their grasp of timing is basically... <laughs>
1: I was going to say paralleled but but perhaps not
4: (laughs) and and the chap who's, who's narrating this actually drew our attention to the fact that the rhythms of the wheels on the track were very like some of the basic beats in classical music and so we had to listen to it last night just to see if we could discover this for ourselves and I can tell you no, <laughs> <laughs> we possibly may, we not. We may need to listen to it one more time.
1: <laughs> the two cars that we uh, have driven, Dean, you've driven both of them. Are they different in their approach?
2: Yes, quite different, David. Um, uh, but then both of them are very much sort of soft, soft off roaders, sort of boulevard cruisers who do quite. Both do a really good job on the open road and uh, with. We certainly didn't get a chance to try them on dirt roads or rough terrain, and you would need to be careful. They're 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 fine. They're beautifully equipped vehicles, and not the kind of vehicles you would want to thrash around on dirt roads. Get get scratched or anything. Oh don't. yeah, that would be terrible. But both of them, the the patrol, Nissan Patrol and the Kia Sorento, lovely cruising cars, uh, vehicles quite quiet, smooth, um, well damped from road vibration and harshness, good performance. Uh, both cars are really well damped and um, the suspension copes remarkably well. Except once. Well, there was, there was a, uh, a rapidly approaching uh, bump in the road and, uh, which wasn't warned at all. Just a, a concrete dish train and the suspension bottomed out on that. Mm. But the car coped beautifully. It wasn't at all dangerous. Didn't move offline. It stayed uh, true. No damage, Kia. No damage.
1: <laughs> the looks of it, the back now the kia actually does an interesting thing by having more vertical tail
2: lights that's unusual looking at the the backs of the cars together it's um, interesting that the patrol goes from a rounded uh, much smoother design where the headlight uh, the, the tail lamps are uh, also part of that round smooth design the sorrento the, the kia is quite the opposite it um uh, it's a more chiselled look, but it's got its tail lights are quite um, uh, deliberately vertical and quite narrow, and uh, right, reminding me of some earlier, uh, some recent American uh, cars of the 80s and 90s, Cadillacs and that. Mm. Uh, they were, and that has the effect of making the car look narrower rather than wider. Mm. And uh, but it's a distinctively different look from the from the Patrol.
1: Enough of this adventure. We will report back in little more detail on the actual cars themselves at a later date. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Alan Zervis, Dean Oliver, Fred Brain, Gail Brown, Pamela Brain and Paul Just for their great help with the program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are podcast on iTunes or Spotify or there's our Facebook page, Overdrive City. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.